The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. For our text reading, well, I just want to commend each and every one of you for being here today. I know we're right smack dab in the middle of the summertime, and I know there's a lot going on and traveling here and there, and so for those of you who are in town, let me just say thank you uh, for making the Lord's house a priority in your time with God's Word, and I hope that today uh, will be a profitable one as we dive in here uh, to this passage in 2 Kings chapter number 24. If you're uh, visiting with us here today, uh, we are currently in a series that we've entitled Age of Kings, where we've been literally studying the different kings of Judah in the Old Testament and really asking ourselves, what do these kings reveal to us about the king of kings? And that has kind of been our desire over these last few weeks. Uh, Honestly, we know more about this time in history, and we're talking about the time from 1100 B.C. to about 500 B.C. We know more about this time as humanity probably than about any other time in history. There is so much recorded history regarding those 600 years. It's just mind-boggling to see. And as you work through these passages and you see these stories revealed, I mean, literally, some of these things are like the stuff that movies are made out of. I mean, just epic in nature. I mean, honestly, if it weren't recorded, we, we might not even believe some of the stuff that's going on here. The reason we have so much recorded history for these 600 years is even just within the Scripture pages, we have three different perspectives of this 600 time year uh, time span. And uh, we have one angle from First and Second Kings, uh, another author in the First and Second Chronicles, and then all the prophets in the Old Testament are giving a third more spiritual perspective on what's going on through this time frame. And so literally through these three perspectives, we've just got a lot of history that we can glean from. And I know this will be a help to us as we take some time just to read our text today. Inside your service program, there's an outline that you can use to follow along through the message here today. I hope it will be a help to you as we study the Word of God together this morning. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand here as we read from our text today. Second. Kings chapter number 24. Uh, We're going to springboard off of this passage and then throughout the sermon I'm going to walk us through this story. Uh, Rather than try to read the entire account here of what we're going to talk about today, King Zedekiah, I'm just going to kind of give us a launching pad and then I'm just going to kind of give you background as we're moving through the story rather than jumping from uh, 2 Kings then over to Jeremiah and then into Chronicles. Uh, We'll just kind of springboard from here and uh, we'll kind of keep you caught up to speed as we move through the reign of King Zedekiah. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter number 24 here in verse number 18. Zedekiah was 20 and 1 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. This morning, I want to speak on the subject of God's rescuing grace. How does God respond when we are bent toward evil? 
What does God do when we are prone towards sin, when we're prone to breaking his laws? How does God respond to that? What is God's spirit toward that? What does he desire to do towards his people in the midst of that context? So this morning we're going to speak on the subject of God's rescuing grace. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll dive into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we love you for a lot of reasons, but we are so thankful that even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the center of our flaws, that you continue to love us, you continue to pursue us, you continue to chase after us with your rescuing grace because it is your heart, it is your desire that we return to your presence. Lord, I pray that we would learn much about your heart, that we would learn much about your spirit from the way, Lord, that you engage Zedekiah. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. You ever feel like you're just beating your head against a wall, not able to get any momentum or traction in a particular area of your life? And maybe it's at work, uh, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your parenting, and, and you just you feel like you're not able to get any momentum, you're not able to get any traction in a particular sphere of life. Uh, uh, do you ever feel just stuck? Like, I'm, I'm trying to move forward. I, I want to take that next step. But you just, you just feel like you're, you're permanently stuck. This message will show how God in His rescuing grace, even in the midst of these seasons, can truly take us from where we are. And how God attempts to get us to where He desires for us to be. And honestly, where if we knew what God knew, where we would want to be if we saw life from His perspective. So this morning we're going to look at three beautiful realities of God's rescuing grace. How God gets us from so often where we are in our flaws and in our brokenness to where He desires for us to be and the destiny that He has for our lives and really the life that God wants us to have and the blessings and the joy and the peace that comes with a living within the context of his desires. So let's begin here this morning and I'm just going to kind of give you some history so as we move into these points you'll kind of be caught up to speed. In the year 597 BC we're going to find a man by the name of King Zedekiah. Now King Zedekiah did not know it but he was going to be the very last king of Judah. You say he didn't know he was going to be the last king? He didn't know it. You see, God doesn't always count to three. (laughs) How many of you parents have ever done that to your children before? One, (laughs) two. (laughs) You see, God doesn't always do that. God doesn't always say, all right. And so Zedekiah, King Zedekiah, didn't realize that that his nation was about to come to a close. He didn't realize he was going to be the last king in these 600 years of kings. He he wasn't aware of it. But as we're going to see in a moment, he was the last one. So it's 597 BC and a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with Babylon, it was very affluent, much money. Nebuchadnezzar literally was, if we want to call him this, the emperor of the world. Now, while they didn't use that term in this ancient time, for all practical purposes, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was. I mean, he was like the dictator. He was the emperor of this empire known as 
as Babylon. And in this conquering time, they had made Judah, which is what we've been studying over these last few weeks, they've made Judah a vassal state, all right? So Babylon came in, they conquered Judah, but rather than just killing them all and, you know, taking all their stuff, they turned Judah into a vassal state, which literally means they said, you can continue to live here in your country, you can continue to do what you want to do, but in order for us to let you live, you've got to pay us taxes. And so the Judah would literally have to send money back to Nebuchadnezzar, back here to Babylon, in order to survive. Well, they had made this, and you'll find that in 2 Kings chapter number 24, and, and a king before Zedekiah, whose name was Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim and his father decided that they weren't going to pay taxes anymore. They were, they were like, you know what, this is stupid. Here we are, we're living, we're working, and we have to send all of our money, we have to send all of our resources back to Babylon and they do absolutely nothing for us. And so Jehoiakim and his father, these previous kings before Zedekiah, they stand up and say, we're, we're done with it. We're, we're not going to do it anymore. So they raise up an army. They're thinking, man, we're just, we're, we're sick of this thing. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar back in Babylon finds out about what Judah is doing, they're, they're seceding from his empire, quote unquote, he literally sends armies to Jerusalem and these armies make their way to Jerusalem and they begin to knock down the walls of Jerusalem. They go into the temple and they steal everything that is valuable out of the temple. They literally pillage the entire city. They this is interesting. You'll find this in 2 Kings 24. But they took everyone who made approximately $200,000 or more. So if you were like, if you were like an upper class, you know, in Jerusalem during that time, uh, what they did is they took them and they moved all the rich people back to Babylon. And they were going to use them in their empire. And so they moved them. And then they took a second group of people, kind of the middle class people, and did the same. They took them back to Babylon and they were going to use them more for servants and kind of those types of things in their empire. And then they left all the poor people to stay in Jerusalem. They figured they weren't as smart, they wouldn't be as wise, they wouldn't rebel in the same way. And so all the poor people got to stay in Jerusalem. And during this time, they took the entire army of Jerusalem, or Judah, and they assimilated that army into Babylon's army. So their, Judah's army had to become Babylon's army, and uh, they said basically you got to pay taxes again. So what they did, this is kind of interesting, they took the king at that time, Jehoiakim, and they put him in chains and sent him to Babylon. Now, this is kind of an interesting little fact. How many of you collect things? How many of you have little collections? I, I know a few of you, Mrs. Church, you raised your hand. You've got those, those uh, porcelain dolls. I know your husband, he collects train sets and things along those lines. Uh, Dorothy, I've been to your house before. You collect the little owls and everything, and you've got those. And, and Glow, I think you have those little angels and just angels everywhere. You're in your living room and things. And, and, and a lot of us have different things that we, we collect, you know, and some of you maybe maybe back in the day. How many of you guys ever collected baseball cards? All right, maybe back in the day, you had a baseball card collection or something like that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a collection of his own. It was kind of interesting. Uh, he collected kings. He had a king collection. <laughs> Literally, the way it would work is when he would conquer a, a, a country, he would take the king and he'd bring him back to his king collection. And then whenever he was throwing a big party and he wanted to impress all his friends, he would make all the kings of all these different nations come out and kind of, you know, walk before him and he'd, he'd show off. Look at all my kings. 
And so that's what he did with Jehoiakim. He took Jehoiakim and sent him back and he made him one of his kings in his king collection. And he decided to put a man by the name of Zedekiah on the throne. Okay, that's who we're talking about now, Zedekiah. And he tells Zedekiah here, he says, I don't want you to raise up an army. He says, I don't want you to build up your walls. He says, I don't want you to, I don't want you to, to do anything that would rebel against me. And he says, on top of that, you're going to continue, you're going to pay me taxes. Basically, what Nebuchadnezzar was saying is, I want you submissive, I want you vulnerable, and I want you poor. And he says, Zedekiah, you can, you can be the little ruler. You can be the little king of this vassile state, but only because I'm allowing you to. As long as you don't build up the wall, as long as you don't raise up an army, as long as you pay me taxes. So during this time, we fast forward. If we go to the book of Jeremiah, which gives us another perspective on this story, we find that Jeremiah comes along and he comes to Zedekiah and the nation of Israel and he says basically, as the prophet of God, he says, the reason this is happening to you, the reason your walls are all tore down, the reason that all the rich people and all the armies have been sent away, the reason that you're suffering, the reason you're having to pay taxes is because you are being judged by God. God is trying to get your attention. And, and here in essence is what Jeremiah says here uh, to uh, King Zedekiah. He says, Zedekiah, I want you to listen to me. He says, don't worry about trying to build back up the walls. This is, this is the prophet Jeremiah. He's saying, don't, don't worry about trying to build an army right now. Don't worry about trying to, you know, rebel against Babylon right now. He says, I don't want you to worry about that. He says, I want you to worry about one thing. I want you to lead the nation of Judah back to God. Because here's what, here's what Jeremiah understood. God could take care of Nebuchadnezzar. God could take care of the circumstances. God could take care of the enemies. God could take care of the situations. But unless there was a heart that was genuinely and regularly being drawn and pursuing God, they could try all they wanted to defeat the enemy. It wasn't going to work. They could try all they wanted to fix their little situation. It was hopeless. And so Jeremiah comes along and he says, I want you to focus on the main thing here. And I want you to focus on pursuing God, of leading your people back to Him. Don't try to be some type of dictator. Just lead the people to desire God again. If you do, God will restore the people when God is ready. Basically, Jeremiah says, God will take care of this thing. You focused first and foremost on your relationship with God and leading the people to a relationship with God. And in time, I will lead you into what you need to do with the circumstances and with the enemies and with the problems and with the obstacles. But get first things first. First, come back to God. And so Jeremiah comes along and he just starts preaching. But Zedekiah was the king. And people who are kings like doing things their way. They want to do what they want to do. You ever been there before? You want to do what you want to do. And that's where Zedekiah found himself. So, a few years goes by, and Zedekiah, not learning, 
from his past, not learning from the history, not listening to the prophet Jeremiah, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. He starts to raise up an army. He starts to push things politically. He starts to rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar gets mad and sends out an army, basically sending out an army back to Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar says, wipe them out. Destroy them. I'm done. So a few days go by and uh, Zedekiah calls for Jeremiah. (laughs) You'll find this in Jeremiah 37. And he says, he basically calls Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, come here, we need you now. (laughs) Jeremiah comes to stand before King Zedekiah. And Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, we want you to pray for us. And Jeremiah's like, I ain't going to pray for you. You see see what's going on here? See, sometimes we get in these situations and we're like, I just need to pray. I just need God. And Jeremiah's like, no, God's told you what to do. God's told you that he wants you to repent, to turn back to him. And you've decided to do this thing your own way. You've gotten a situation of your own making. He says, don't pray. He says, repent. Turn back to God. Get your heart focused on him. Do... What his spirit's leading you to do. You know, can I say this? There's sometimes we don't need to be praying about things. When God has already revealed something. You say, are you against prayer? I'm very much for prayer. Very much for prayer. Don't take that as an... But I'm here to say there are often times when it's not prayer that's needed. It's repentance, turning back to God, keeping your focus on Him and abiding in His presence. And as you abide with Him, all of a sudden you get to experience what He's experiencing and you'll see God begin to take care and lead you in what to do in the situation around you. Well, a few days go by and uh, Zedekiah says, you've got to see this. Calls Jeremiah again. They go to the walls. They look out and get this. Uh, we see Babylon, the armies of Babylon, as they look out over the walls. And the, literally the armies are leaving. They go away. And Zedekiah's like, wow, this is awesome. They, they've left. They're gone. They're done. And he's like, God's delivered us. And Jeremiah comes along and he says, no, God has not delivered you. God in his grace and long-suffering and patience is just giving you another chance. And so Jeremiah again says to Zedekiah, just because they're leaving doesn't mean God's okay with this. What God is trying to show you is he's giving you another chance. God is being patient. God is being long-suffering. God is being loving and gracious. He is forbearing because he loves you. You're his people. He cares for you and he's giving you another chance. But here he says to literally to Zedekiah says, do it now. Surrender now. They're leaving. Why surrender? Jeremiah says, this is your chance. Just surrender to him. Just tell him, hey, you were wrong. Because that's what God's wanting you to do. Well, I want to remind us here for just a moment, and we'll kind of dive in. I'm going to get back to the story in just a moment. But the reality is, like Israel, as believers, you belong to God. 
You belong to him. As a believer, you're his chosen people. And God loves you. You say, if God loves me so much, why does he allow these difficulties into my life? Why does he allow the enemies? And why does he allow the circumstances? And why does he allow the problems? And, and, and there's a multiple reasons for that. But sometimes, sometimes God allows those things in our lives to get us to a place where we have to look back to God. To remind us that we need the presence of God. That we need to abide with Him. That we need to spend time with Him. That we need to get a fresh look, a fresh and anew upon Him. Which leads us to our first thought this morning and that is this. When God allows difficult circumstances in your life. One, God is not trying to pay you back. God is trying to win you back. Just like with Zedekiah, God's not here like, oh, I hate these guys. They never listen to me. They never do what I'm telling them to do. What's wrong with these people? You see, God in his love and his long-suffering was trying to give King Zedekiah and the nation there of Judah another opportunity, another chance to get right, another chance to get their focus fixed on him. But Zedekiah, he's the king, and he's like, no, I want to fix this, and I want to fix that. And this philosophy becomes so predominant in our churches because it's like our knee-jerk reaction. We go to church and we want our little list of what to do like treadmill Christianity give me my seven things so I can do it rather than just saying hey get your heart fixed on God once you get your heart fixed on him and your heart anchored and abiding in him his spirit will lead you his spirit will reveal through his word what it is that needs to be done but you can do all of those little things on the checklist you can run on that little treadmill of Christianity but if you don't have a heart that is turned toward God that's daily abiding with him you can try everything every practical little list and none of it's going to work if God's not in it. And so we've got these churches and they'll give you a whole lot of do this and do that and here's a list of things and here's a list of don't things and these things are in the Bible and they're good but I want to say this, the focus, the essence always has to be God. What God did for us, why? To reveal what God wants to do through us. There's an emphasis. There's a focus. The focus is not what you do for God. The focus is what God wants to do through you. The focus is Him. It's Him. God's not trying to pay you back. God is trying to win you back. You see what this is revealing. God is not just teaching us don't be like Zedekiah what God's trying to say is here's how I work here's how I respond when you're being like Zedekiah when you are playing the rebel when you are the disobedient king who thinks he can do whatever he wants God's revealing to us in this passage this is how he responds to rebellious Zedekiahs this is how he responds when I am rebellious and when I am disobedient he responds with a heart that loves and that cares that is patient and long suffering and forbearing and recognizes because he is all knowing he sees the end from the beginning he sees the path that I'm going and where that path's going to take me and in his love in his, in his care and his long suffering he tries to give warning after warning not because he's trying to pay us back but because he's trying to win us back Romans chapter number 2 verse 4 in the New Testament really speaks to this idea when it says despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, why do you despise it? You're his people. You're his children. If, you, if you've been saved, you're a child of God. Do you not know, it's like a rhetorical question, that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? You say, what makes my heart want to turn back to God? 
Not five things you're supposed to do. That doesn't, nothing about the law makes my heart want to come after God. That's not what draws my heart to God. The, the law, what to do and what not to do, and here's three practical tips for that and four practical, that, that'll show me what God wants to do through me, but it can't change my heart and make me want what God wants. It can't change my heart and make me value what God values. It can't change my heart and make me motivated by what motivates God. What Romans is telling us, it it is the goodness of God. It is understanding His goodness and His forbearance and His patience and His long-suffering. It's basking in that reality that changes my heart from the inside out and makes me want to repent. That makes me want to turn back to God. That makes me desire what He desires. You can have your little checklist, but if God hasn't changed your heart, if He hasn't changed your values, if He hasn't changed what's important to you, you can do your little checklist. It won't work. It'll be sabotaged by pride and arrogance and selfishness and, and all these things that literally sabotage what we're trying to do good. Because the main thing's the main thing, recognizing that my heart has to be fixed on Him. Focused on Him and Him alone. Repentance is simply agreeing with God in our beliefs. It's coming back to God. Uh, repentance means to turn. To turn from, to turn to. It means agreeing to God in our beliefs. To turn from what we believe, turn towards what God believes. To turn from my will, to turn toward His will. To, to turn toward abiding in Him. Can I say this? It might even be in your notes. God pursued us even when we were living in wickedness. He will not abandon us in our moments of weakness. God is not trying to pay you back. If you're a believer, everything got paid back on the back of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. All the consequences of your sin, all the penalty of your sin was laid upon the person of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He's not trying to pay you back. You've already been paid back because of what Jesus did for you. Jesus took your punishment. He took your penalty. God is not trying to pay you back. It's already been paid in full. But he is trying to win you back. To show you that the path of a, moving away from his will, moving away from abiding in his presence, moving toward what you as the king of your life wants. He's trying to show you that that direction is going to lead only to pain and disappointment and a lack of satisfaction. You see, since God is so patient and God is so good and God is so kind and because God is so long-suffering, since I am a child of God and those of you who put your faith and trust in Jesus because you are a child of God, His love for you is overwhelming and because His love for me is overwhelming and because He's so patient and kind and good, I don't have to run from God in rebellion. I now am free to run to Him in repentance. Because I understand he's good. Because I understand he's loving. Because I understand he's patient. I no longer have to try to do my best to get out. No, rather than running from him in rebellion, I can now run to him in repentance. God's not trying to pay you back. He's trying to win you back. Let's move on in our story. Like I said a moment ago, Zedekiah calls Jeremiah and says, See, I told you. <laughs> They're gone. They're out of here. We're, we're in the clear. And Jeremiah says, Whoa. No. 
God in his long suffering. God in his patience and his forbearance. In his graciousness. Is giving you another chance. He's giving you another opportunity because he loves you. He wants to show you again how good he is. According to Jeremiah chapter number 37 verse 11, what actually happened here was that when the Babylonian armies came to Judah and surrounded Jerusalem, the Egyptians came in behind toward Babylon and started fighting the Babylonians. And so now there's this war breaking out between the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he realizes, hey, Judah's small potatoes. Bring the armies back to Babylon. We got to take on the Egyptians. Zedekiah didn't know this. Zedekiah thought, woo! <laughs> God's good. <laughs> I didn't need to repent. <sighs> yeah, I knew it would work out. You ever been there before? God starts impressing on your heart, I want you to repent. And then all of a sudden, it seems like everything's good. Ah, look at this. It, it worked out. And God is saying, I love you. I care for you. And I am patient. And I am long-suffering. And I want to give you as many opportunities as I can to give you a chance to turn back to me. And Jeremiah comes again. He says, Zedekiah, this is your chance. Tell Nebuchadnezzar you'll surrender. Stop trying to build the walls and the armies. Stop playing your political games and just lead the people to desire God afresh and anew. God can take care of Nebuchadnezzar. God can take care of Babylon. God can take care of your problems and your circumstances. And let me say this to you. God can take care of your finances. And God can take care of your families. And God can take care of your marriages. And His Spirit will lead you to engage your family properly. And His Spirit will lead you to engage in your marriage properly. And His grace will drive you to act appropriately with your finances. His spirit can do that through you. But if you're not abiding in the vine, if you're not spending time with him, you can try to do all those little things in the flesh, but you're sabotaging the very good that you're trying to do because it's not God. It's you trying to do it. If you do not have a foundation of repentance toward God, a humility toward God, and abiding toward him, all you do in trying to accomplish good will fail in the end. And so here's Zedekiah. We're good. It all worked out. <laughs> well, Jeremiah begins to continue to preach this in the streets. And Zedekiah gets really angry about all this. Go to Jeremiah chapter number 38. And you'll find where Zedekiah now so angry <laughs> at Jeremiah. He literally takes Jeremiah and he throws him into a well. <laughs> He says, I'm sick and tired of you telling our people to repent, to turn back to God, to get their focus on Him. He says, I'm sick of it. And so he throws him down in this pit. And the Bible says literally there's mud, the mire, is he's down there in the pit. But Jeremiah the prophet doesn't quit. Hey, let's get back to God. Let's abide with Him. Let's pursue Him as He's pursuing us. And literally from the bottom of this well, this dry well with mud at the base of it, Jeremiah just keeps going at it. Just crazy preacher. 
well, Zedekiah gets so angry because it's like in the town and people have passing by. They live, man, here's this well and it's like talking to them. It gets a little weird. So finally, Zedekiah says, just put him in prison. Put him in a dungeon where nobody can hear him. All right, I'm just, I'm sick of this thing. And they, they throw him into prison. But he just keeps telling people to repent. So we get to 2 Kings chapter number 25, the next order in the chronological aspects of the story. And sure enough, one day on the horizon, an army bigger than Judah has ever seen in their lives begins to crest over the horizon. A vast, vast, vast army. An army like Zedekiah has never seen before in his life. And they begin to make their way toward Jerusalem. It's humongous. Literally, as far as their eye could see, army after army after army. And they literally do their best to literally surround Jerusalem. You say, what do they do next? Do they attack? No. Literally what Babylon does at this point is they begin to build a wall of their own around Jerusalem out of mud and bricks and clay. Literally their own wall surrounding the broken walls so nobody can get out. And they just camp out. Wait. Months go by. Six months goes by. A year goes by. And through this time, Jeremiah is saying the people are going hungry. There's famine. We're starving to death. Literally at this point, people are so hungry. They're eating their livestock, their horses, their animals. I mean, it's just getting crazy inside of these walls. And Jeremiah begins to cry out to him again. And he says, just surrender. And Zedekiah gets really scared. He says, if I surrender now, I'm going to die. And Jeremiah says this, and this is so awesome. I know I've not been taking you to all these passages. But turn if you would to Jeremiah chapter number 38 verse 17 I love this then said Jeremiah unto Zedekiah thus saith the Lord the God of hosts the God of Israel if thou wilt assuredly go forth unto the king of Babylon's princes then thy soul shall live And this city shall not be burned with fire. And thou shalt live in thine house. But if that will not go forth to the king of Babylon's princes, then shall this city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And they shall burn it with fire. Thou shalt not escape out of their hands. And Jeremiah says, God loves you so much. And God is so patient. And God is so forbearing. And God is so loving. He's giving you another chance, Zedekiah. You don't have to experience the consequences of this broken, wicked emperor. God, God says, I'll take care of you. And I, you can, Zedekiah is just nervous. The wall's built. There's famine in the land. He's like, ah. And, and he says to Jeremiah, he says, well, there were some Jews that escaped earlier. Now they're on Nebuchadnezzar's side. And he, even, if, even if the king doesn't kill me, those Jews that are outside of there, they'll, they'll conspire against me. 
and, and they'll convince Nebuchadnezzar to kill me. And once again, later on in the passage, you'll see where Jeremiah says again, no, you can trust God. He has promised if you will repent, if you'll agree with my plan, if you'll, if you'll, if you will lead the people to do the main thing, to pursue the heart of God. Don't worry about your little checklist of political to-dos. Don't worry about your little checklist of how to take care of the problem. Get rid of your plans on how to take care of the circumstances. None of those things are going to help you out. What you need is God. And God says the main thing is to pursue His heart, to lead the people to abide with Him. In time, His Spirit will work through you. He'll take care of them. Nebuchadnezzar. He'll take care of the problems. He'll take care of the, the situations. And I want to say to you today, if you'll pursue the heart of God, turn in repentance from what you had, turn toward abiding with Him and pursuing Him, in time His Spirit will take care through you. He'll lead you in His Word to take care of finances and take care of marriage issues and take care of family issues. But don't get the, ho- the cart before the horse. The main thing is to pursue the heart of God, to allow His heart to change your values, to allow His heart to change your motives, to allow His heart to change your identity. Because unless your values, your motives, your identity is changed, anything you try to do practically relevantly is just going to fall flat on its face if it doesn't come from a heart of humility that recognizes unless God is in it, all is vain. There's a place... For the practicals. There's a time for the opposition. There will be a moment where the Spirit of God will lead you. But first, things are always first. And that is to abide in the presence of God. To spend time with Him and lead your people, your family, your marriage. To lead those around you toward God. Can I say this? God will do anything to get you back because he loves you that much. He doesn't want you to experience the pain and the hurt of the Nebuchadnezzars of this world. He has something better. God will do anything to get you back. I'll throw this on the screen. According to what the scriptures tell us, God who did not spare his own son to gain your salvation. Okay, the Bible says God loves you. He pursued you so much that he was willing to sacrifice who? Talk to me. Jesus. Notice this. God who did not spare his own son to gain your salvation will not spare your health, your wealth, your marriage, or career possibly to get your attention. Because you are more important. Now, do I believe God wants you to have health? Yes. No, I do believe, obviously, God ordained marriage. But some of us in this room, we've made mistakes. And now our marriage has been broken. It's not God's plan. It's not what God desires. But he was willing to sacrifice his very own Son, and he'll not spare your health or your wealth or even your career to get your attention because he loves you that much. 
if he was willing to give up Jesus for your salvation. There's nothing he won't spare. Does he want to? I I believe the heart of God is good. He wants to spare you from losing your health or your wealth or your career. But it's not off limits to his sovereignty. Oh, that our hearts would be turned back to Ken, which leads us to our next thought, and that is this. God won't spare anything trying to win you back. God won't spare anything trying to win you back. (laughs) Revelation chapter number 3 verse 19 says this. Obviously, this is John speaking. And he's quoting Jesus when he says this. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. God doesn't rebuke and chasten because he hates us. He doesn't rebuke and chasten because he, he despises us. He chastens because he wants us to draw back to him, to come back to see him as most important. More important than our health, more important than our wealth, more important than our careers. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus speaking to Christians. Oftentimes this passage gets preached as a salvation message. In its proper context, this is Jesus knocking on the door of a heart of a believer. He says, I stand at the door and knock. You call me Lord. You say I'm king, but I'm outside. If any man hear my voice and open the door, notice this. I will come in and will sup. I will abide. I will spend time with him or with me. You know what God desires? You. More than he desires your work. Can I just say this? When God has your heart, he'll have your life. It flows out. You can work for God without loving God. You you can't love Him though without working. Working is an outflow of an inward heart of love. You say, if I repent, if I turn my back on what I'm doing and toward God, I'll have to admit I was wrong. Can I say this? The Bible declares that there is nothing that could ever be uncovered about you and me that has not already been covered by the grace of Jesus. It's okay for you to repent. It's okay with you to agree with God. It's okay to get things out in the open because there is nothing that you could uncover in repentance that has not already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're free to repent. You're free to let these things be known. You're free to let him out in the open. You're free to get it right with your spouse. You're free to get it right with your family. You're free to get it right with your Lord because it's already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would turn back. God won't spare anything to win you back. But notice the end of the story. We come to 2 Kings 25 and Zedekiah says, no. I'm not surrendering. I'm the king. I do what I want to do. That's what kings do. Kings don't surrender. Kings don't submit. Nobody tells a king what to do. Kings are kings. I ain't surrendering. And so we come to 2 Kings 25 and verse 4. And the city was broken up and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls which is by the king's garden. 
Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went up the way toward the plain. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king, this is verse 5 of chapter 25, and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. Verse 6, so he took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. Zedekiah says, I'm not listening to God. I got my plans. I know God's been patient. I know God's been long-suffering. I know God has tried to give me chance after chance after chance after chance to do it. What he has called me to do. To lead the people back to abiding with God. To keep the focus on a relationship with God. I'm not going to lead the people to a, a relationship with God. To pursuing God. To abiding with God. That's not what kings do. Kings rule. Kings reign. So he did it his own way in verse 8. Verse 7. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters, chains of brass and carried him off to Babylon. God gave Zedekiah chance after chance. And Zedekiah got to a place, I'm not going to do what God's leading me to do. I'm not going to lead our people to pursue God, to abide with God, to spend time with God. And he does it his own way. And Zedekiah let his mistakes and he let his setbacks keep him from doing the right thing. At the very end, you'll remember the story we just told a moment ago. Well, if I do that, I made that mistake where I let the Jews go and now they'll even get me even if Nebuchadnezzar lets me live. And he lets these setbacks, he lets his mistakes keep him from finally just saying, all right, even though God had promised to take care of him. Here's what's amazing about our God. God will continue to take care. It's amazing even in our sin, even in our brokenness. God's trying to get us opportunity after opportunity. He continues to stand at the door of our life and knock and knock and knock and knock and we'll make a mistake and even then God still seems to give us long suffering and God still seems to give us patience and some of you are here today because of the great mercy of God. And some of you might be here today and God's giving you a momentary moment to get this thing right. You're like, why? It seems to be okay. He's giving you another chance. To simply agree with him and say, I got to make the main thing pursuing the heart of God. To draw back into his presence. One of the indications as to whether or not I truly bask in a deep experiential understanding of God's long-suffering patience. How, how do I know? What's an indication if I'm really understanding God's goodness and his patience and his long-suffering? Here's one of the ways we know because our heart's deceitful. We're great at self-deception. Every one of us are. We need the word of God to reveal what's in our hearts. And one of the indications as a heart that truly gets this, that truly understands that God is long-suffering and truly understands that God is patient and truly understands that God is gracious is how I respond when I sin. It's one of the best indicators of whether or not you really get it. When you sin, do you run to God Or do you run from him? 
If you really understand that God's loving and merciful, you're okay with running to the arms of your Father. When you really understand that He is good and He is gracious and He is long-suffering and forbearing, when you sin, it's easy to turn back to Him in repentance, to run to His presence, to run to experience Him afresh and anew. Somebody who doesn't understand the goodness and the patience and the long-suffering and the forbearance of God, when they sin, it's like, i got to start running now. Maybe I can outrun them. (laughs) Maybe I can get out of here before anybody finds out. That just reveals that this person does not know truly, deeply the grace and long-suffering and patience and forbearance and mercy and grace of their God. One of the best indicators of your view of God is how you respond when you sin. Do you run to Him? Do you run to Him and abiding with Him in in personal time and in Bible study and getting to know His heart and in prayer, getting to know His his nature, coming to the house of God? Yes, maybe you've messed up, but coming to His house. Why? So I can come to His Word and experience His presence in worship. Somebody who doesn't understand the goodness and grace of God will quickly begin to run from God when they sin. And it simply reveals they do not know deeply the nature of who God is. They don't see God as a loving father. They see him as an old, you know, just, yes, you know, cranky old man up in, up in the sky just waiting to kind of do him in. It's not how a heavenly father responds to a repentant sinner with open arms. He says, I'm not trying to pay you back. Try to win you back. And when you draw nigh to his heart, the chastening can be done. It doesn't mean that there's not still some consequences for sin. That's not what we're saying. But God no longer has to use those circumstances to draw you back. You're back. Your heart is with him. Which leads us to our last thought, and that is simply this. Don't let a setback keep you from a comeback. Repent. And come back to God. You say, what is repent? It just means to turn. To turn toward God. To to turn toward His presence. To turn away from what you had. Turn toward Him. So, how does grace, how does God's grace lead us to repentance? You say, how can this practically happen? I don't want to keep this thing vague. I want you to truly understand how does repentance look functionally in our lives? What is God's grace going to do when he's bringing us back to him? I want you to see, first of all, grace leads us to abide in God's presence. That, that's what repentance is. Turning from what I was going after, turning toward the presence of God, turning toward him, turning toward the experience and abiding and dwelling with him. You say, why is this so important? John 15, verse 5. If you want to jot it down, you can study it later. John 15, 5 says, He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. You can try to fix your finances on your own. You can read every self-help book in Barnes and Nobles. You can find every pop psychology sermon given in planet Earth. But unless God is in it, unless the foundation is a foundation of humility, unless it comes from a place of God's Spirit working through you, where His Spirit has changed your heart and your values and your beliefs and your identity and your motives, unless it comes from that place, you can, it's going to be vain. Read every book you want to read and you'll still fall flat on your face. Does God use that? Yes. 
when we're surrendered to him, when we're abiding with him, when we're dwelling with him, when we keep that main thing the main thing, he'll use that information, he'll use that knowledge, he'll use those principles to lead us forward. But those principles, even if they come from the scripture, they're still, they will not glorify God in their fullest capacity unless they are being lived out by his spirit. Unless it is his, his spirit changing your motives and your heart and your values and your identities. Unless it flows out of that. You're sabotaging the very good you're trying to do. Can I say this? God's grace will always lead us to abide in his presence first. God's grace, number two if you're taking notes. God's grace leads us to acknowledge God's wisdom. What is God's grace going to do when he's leading me toward repentance? It's going to lead you to acknowledge God's wisdom. Here's what the Bible says. The foolishness of God is wiser than, the, than, than of men or than the wisdom of men. Acknowledge God's wisdom. You see, when God's grace is working your heart toward repentance, He's going to lead you to abide with God's presence. All of a sudden, it's not just going to change that. It's also going to change your mind, your thinking. This is mentally acknowledging God's wisdom. This, this is where the practical nature of God's word becomes so valuable. Once we begin to abide in his presence, then his word can really blossom in our lives as we acknowledge God's wisdom. Then number three, grace will lead us to agree with God's word. John 17 verse 17, what is truth? Thy word is truth. God's grace will lead us not just to acknowledge the wisdom of God, We've got a lot of Christians running around. They know what God says about this and they know what God says about that. But they don't really believe it. They know it. They could regurgitate it. They could even articulate it to a friend. But deep down, they don't really believe it. And grace of God in repentance leads us to abide in God's presence, to acknowledge God's word, to agree with God's word, I'm sorry, acknowledge God's wisdom, agree with God's word. Why? Because we understand that God is gracious and God is kind and God is long-suffering and we respond with an abiding in Him last. He'll lead us to align with God's will. Luke eleven twenty eight 28 says this, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. See, true repentance, holistic repentance, not just in word only, not just giving kind of verbal credence to something, but true spirit-filled repentance is going to lead us to eventually align with God's will. You see, God wants your heart, not just your hands. But when he gets your heart, he'll also have your hands. Maybe in most areas of your life, maybe we're sitting here today and I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit. And maybe you're living, you're here today and you're like, Pastor, the best I can tell and as I'm searching my heart, for the, for the most part, I feel like I'm living in alignment to God's will and God's word. I, I feel like I'm there. And you say, maybe there's just this one area. And in most areas, I feel like I'm living in a spirit of repentance and a spirit of discernment with him. But there's that one area. And the truth is you don't need me to point it out. Because the Holy Spirit, if he's living in your heart, he has pointed it out again and again and again and again. He doesn't need me to tell you. You know. And maybe it's in your parenting. And you're not surrendered to his will. You're not acknowledging his grace toward you and living out that grace toward your family or in your marriage. 
And you don't need me to stand up here and tell you to repent. Holy Spirit's been working on you about that. Maybe it's in your career or in your finances. And you know what the Spirit of God is. You don't need me to tell you to repent. You, you know that area where your values are not aligned with his values. Your behavior is not aligned with his will. Maybe it's in your entertainment. And you know the things that you allow into your eyes are not healthy. They're not, they're not making you want to spend more time with God. They're just distracting you from it. And you don't need a preacher to stand up and rip on the horrors of entertainment. You just, you, the Spirit of God's been kind of, he pricks your heart, you know. It's not, it's not healthy in abiding with him. It doesn't, it doesn't cause you to look toward Christ. But rather it distracts you from a relationship with him. It dulls your senses towards him. And the Spirit of God is working. There is a practical element to all of this. Because without the, pra- the practical element does not blossom, it reveals that there was nothing truly in the heart. But you can, you can have the outward. You can, you can have a, a, a facade of the outward and, and fool me and fool everybody else here. But if, if it doesn't come from a foundation of abiding in Christ and a, a foundation of humility and a foundation of just recognizing I can't but God can Eventually, it's going to be again. You can't fix your situation, but God can. Trying to fix your circumstances your way can actually make things worse. Only a spirit of repentance and coming back to the abiding presence of God can produce any long-term health. Oh, that you would humble and that I would humble myself. To desire God above all else. To desire Him more than what I'm wearing. Desire Him more than what I'm watching. To desire Him more than what I'm doing. To desire Him more than a bank account or a toy or some pursuit. To desire Him above all else. And that is what God told King Zedekiah to do. Get your energy and get your resources and get your focus and your behaviors and just start focusing on me, aligning with me, get my heart, spend time with me. He says, if you'll do that, if you'll allow me access to abide in your heart, I will change your heart. And out of the issues of the heart flow everything else. You see, when God gets your heart, he gets everything. Don't just stand there trying to give God everything, but not let him access to your heart. He changes your heart as you abide with him. Even in the midst of these horrible circumstances and and Zedekiah's rebellion, there was never a moment where God stops trying to win him back. You won't find one place in that story where God's like, ah, it doesn't happen. I mean, literally, to the very end, he tried to get opportunity after opportunity to the last moments. God's trying to win him back, not pay him back, win him back, win him back, win him back. But if the nature of this world is such, there's coming a moment where the flawed nature of this world, where the brokenness of humanity and the consequences that come along with that, I want to call you to repentance. A repentance that says, God, I want you more than anything. I want to pursue you more than I want anything else. That is the true heart of repentance. 
A lot of times we talk about repentance, about turning from something. The nature of holiness is not just about what we turn from. The true DNA of repentance is not about what we turn from. It's about who we turn to. It's focusing on His presence, focusing on experiencing Him. I understand that as we turn to Him, there are some things we turn away from. But that's simply a ramification. It's not a prime focus. The prime focus is always God. It's always Jesus. It's always abiding with Him, looking to Him, spending time with Him. And in the process, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. God is not trying to pay you back. God is trying to win you back with His rescuing grace because He loves you and because He pursues you because he desires you because as a believer you belong to him and there's nothing he's not willing to sacrifice to get your heart back he doesn't want to but if he was willing to give up his very own son there's nothing he's not willing to sacrifice to get your heart back to I don't want anybody in here to lose their marriage because they're so bent on this desire. Some man in here to lose his, his relationship with his children because he wants to go up, because he wants his will, he wants to do what he wants to do. More than he desires God. I'd hate for somebody to have to lose their job because they're just an area where they're just stubborn. God said, I'm giving you a chance. I love you. I want you. I desire you. But you have to make me the number one priority above all else. What, keep, what is keeping you from turning back to God? You say, in most areas, I feel like I'm walking with him. But you know, you say, that, but there's that one area. What is it that's keeping you from repenting in that one area? Is it pride? Well, what will people think? What would my wife say? Is it rebellion? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Is it just you reinterpret all the word of God? You just take the word of God? Well, that's not really what God means. <laughs> that's my, that might be what it means for you, but it doesn't mean that for me. You reinterpreting it. What is it keeping you from just pursuing God above all else? Desiring him. What is that keeps me from that? You're here today. So I believe God's got another opportunity. An opportunity to say, it's your chance. It's your opportunity. Not all the bad things that happen in our life is God's chastening. I would never want to communicate that. But sometimes God does allow some uncomfortable things into our lives to reveal that he is more important than all of it. Because he loves you. And with his rescuing grace, he desires to draw you and to reveal to you that you need him. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father.